have to imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once the hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain and to embrace the void. Virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 182 of Embrace the Void, where we are committed to building two bridges for everyone we burn down. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week, the culture war outreach continues. I'm really enjoying these conversations, and I hope you all are finding that they go to places you're not expecting as well. So let's go on an adventure. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Jay Shapiro, host of the Dilemma podcast and documentary filmmaker with films like Islam and the Future of Tolerance. Jay, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? I like it. Yeah. That is how we, we get things rolling on this Isn't show. And scream, I appreciate you. We scream into the void normally, right? But I'm not going to blow out the mic and scream into it. So you, If you need to scream into the void, <laughs> no, the I'm void good. will accept your screams, but I'm we prefer... Good you know, moderate tones. Yes, <laughs> so, into the void. Yeah. Yes, that's right. We ASMR into the void. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. I've been doing a bunch of these kind of trying to do outreach with folks who I think are not exactly in my in-group, but mm. are uh, accessible and having these kinds of uh, conversations. And your name came up several times as someone who wanted people wanted me to chat with. And then I went and listened to your podcast, Dilemma, and I could immediately understand why, partly because you and I have a, have a lot of shared interests, I think, but also because um, I thought, you know, when you got into sort of the culture war stuff on your show in various ways, it was often very well handled and, mm, and thoughtful. Thanks. So I'm glad that you uh, were willing to come on and have this chat. Do you want to let folks know, maybe give a little background on how you ended up sort of in the trenches of the culture war and sort of where you feel like you are with all of it at this point, sure. broadly speaking. Yeah. Who knows anymore? Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, what's my story. I mean, I grew up in a suburb in, in Pennsylvania, uh, very liberal family, Jewish family, but totally secular. Um, yeah. Just liberal values. Thought that's who I was still consider myself a liberal, but I'm not sure what it means anymore. Probably like a lot of people out there. Um, so yeah, I sort of plunged in intellectually into all of this stuff. I was a in college when 9-11 hit, and that was the first time mm -hmm. where I started asking a lot of questions, which to me just felt sort of intuitive. I don't know, curious questions like, hey, 
does ideology or religion have anything to do with just happened? Those guys seem to be yelling a lot about the Quran and talking about infidels. Like, can we talk about that? It was on a very liberal college campus at uh, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And even before I voiced those, I already could feel the sort of discomfort in my own mind being like, wait a minute, am I being a racist here? Am I being sort of xenophobic? What am I? And so I was already having this sort of conflict. And I very much realized I was totally intellectually unprepared um, Mm -hmm. to uh, tackle any of the stuff that was happening in my head. I I had never really considered another kind of philosophy or argument other than what I was sort of uh, parroting at my school. And so that, that, that started me down that, that conversation and that quest internally Um, years and years. I became a filmmaker, didn't make any films about that kind of stuff for a long time. Um, But the, the Mm -hmm. volume just in, in our society, as we all know, just kept going louder and louder on all these kind of subjects. Um, discovered the work of Sam Harris uh, around that time when he wrote The End of Faith and was like, oh, cool, like other people are trying, are voicing much more eloquently what I'm struggling to do in my own head here. Um, but then, of course, he starts getting, uh, you know, uh, vilified uh, as a xenophobe and, and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I, I like this guy. Does that mean I'm a racist? What's happening here? All of this mean, is is uh, setting up me making a film with, with Sam Harris and Majin Nawaz, uh, fairly recently, which was me really just trying to honestly get it out of my system of like, listen, I just got to like say what I'm going to say as a filmmaker, put this Mm -hmm. out there. I'm rather convinced by the uh, political rather than sort of philosophical argument that if we as liberals, I still consider myself one, fail to talk about this topic, honestly, the right is going to have it for us. And we're probably not going to like what they're going to do with it. That was something Sam Mm -hmm. was saying ages ago. I was rather convinced by it. Um, i think a, a lot of that has sort of borne itself out. So I, that's why I made the film and, and plugged into it and jumped into it. Um, but can I, can I ask yeah, actually, uh, yeah, yeah. in relation to the film, what what sort of things do you feel like, what truths do you feel like liberals were afraid to say during that time or, or maybe you still think are, are still afraid to say with regard to these sorts of issues? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, because, you know, they often get cast as sort of the four horsemen, the new atheist movement, with Dawkins and Dennett and uh, Hitchens and, and Sam, I don't know how new any of it was, but if there's anything that was sort of a, a newish thing that I was hearing, it was a um, not just sort of blanket, like all religion sucks. It's all harmful. It's crap. Let's just leave it in the graveyard of history. But it was also adding on, Oh, and by the way, specific um, philosophies and teachings manifest to, in different ways that are on different levels of, of harmfulness. Something like fundamentalism is is only as dangerous as the fundamentals themselves is, uh, maybe I'm, I'm phrasing that mm-hmm. a little wrong, but a fundamental, you know, um, the Jainist Buddhist, this is the, the, the example that's always gets used, is very different than a fundamental uh, Jew in Jerusalem mm-hmm. or a Muslim in, in uh, you know, Iraq or anything. And they're all different. And we need to talk about them differently politically and speak about them differently. And they all can sort of be differently um, dangerous. That was the piece of the equation that seemed to be um, not allowed to be put on the table in a lot of liberal circles because it, it seemed to be xenophobic or pointing something out. If there's like a specific phrase, obviously, Islam is a religion of peace is, is a statement that is, um, you know, debatable, at least, depending on how you talk about all these kinds of things in that context. And post 9-11, the desire to insist that we are not going to talk about um, 
motivations mm-hmm. for this kind of action other than sort of uh, imperialism or addiction to oil, which are all legitimate. Like the argument really shouldn't be none of that stuff matters. It's all religion. It, it should be in its best conception, a let's honestly talk about all of the variables that could have led to this kind of thing um, and how we move forward with it. And the fear, of mm-hmm. course, is that if we don't do that, if you don't include the sort of criticism of religion or ideology or culture, this very big word, because it's somehow sacred in liberal circles, what you might do is actually um, increase the danger of Muslim bigotry because people kind of see through the BS. And it also puts ex-Muslims or Muslims who are critical of it in more danger because they get silenced as being illegitimate. It, 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 there's a tendency to mm-hmm. sort of, of course, um, you know, homogenize a culture, uh, a race, a religion, whatever it is, as having sort of one ideology and one thought. Um, and to me, that felt condescending. And so it was, an, it was a long process in my own mind of, of getting myself back to being like, no, I am a liberal. I'm just trying to universalize my principles. Meaning if I think my neighbor in North Carolina, who's a woman, should have the right to show her hair in public, why am I not extending that same moral proposition to a woman in Saudi Arabia? Now, of course, that's just a moral proposition. Politically, very complicated about how to express that, even if we should do mm-hmm. it, et cetera. But morally, I was like, no, no, that's right. I have that right. Like that, that principle is easy. I don't need to think about it too much more morally. We could do it, but yes, women should be able to show their hair. And so I should be able to say that and getting over the fear of, you know, criticizing a culture or something like that is um, Mm -hmm. a difficult thing to do. And maybe this is a preview of what we'll probably get to. A lot of people convince themselves they must be some sort of like anti-woke crusader or right winger or Trumper because they're doing it. And they they go from like, you know, zero to a hundred in some like awful thing in their mind. and it's it obviously drives me crazy. I'm sure it drives you crazy. Totally unnecessary to do. Totally unnecessary. Yeah. So that's interesting. Let's 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 put aside the like radicalization, mm-hmm. uh, reactionary side of things for a second. So I, I do definitely want to talk about sort of how things have gone in the IDW, maybe even just <laughs> since you've made that movie. Yeah. Um, but I want to un- I want to sort of dig in a little bit there with what you were saying. I'm not sure how much of what you just described is your current view versus your view when you were making mm-hmm. the movie in particular. Um, sort of my my feelings about this are I do think it is an interesting and important question to say, are there differences between religions that make it such that X religion is more likely to produce a violent radical than Y religion or something like that, for example? I think that is a legitimate point of inquiry. Um, I am, I think, maybe a little bit more skeptical at present about being able to really point to a particular religion and say, you know, that's the mother of all bad ideas to quote a certain individual. Right. Um, and I, I, I just, think I just want to, I want to just chime in that he, he does admit he misspoke there where he says, sure. Okay. Where, yeah, where he says a, it's right. a, a mother load of bad ideas rather than the, which is a, which is a tiny little word, but a fair, a very big one to point out. Yes. Yes. Misspoke, that's fair. Sure. And, and it will know. And it gets to the, the sort of concern that I have about, trying to make claims like that in particular right so i look at you know america and the capitol hill riot i look at um you know the coup in myanmar these sorts of like the the genocides of of individuals by buddhists and when you see buddhists like murdering a lot of people right you start to think maybe all of these religions could potentially like Mm -hmm. go that way and and so but that's not to necessarily say they all go that way to the same degree. And I think it's it's hard. And I think I want to also push back a little bit and say, I think that 
folks in the sort of anti-woke sphere when they hear people being anxious about criticism of islam for example it gets they see it as this being this kind of purity thing and i i'm not saying there's none of that in the woke world but i think you know to a fair appraisal of the concern is when we get into the process of distinguishing between the sort of stable, not going to murder a lot of people religions and the unstable, likely to murder a lot of people religions, what we end up reproducing is is cultural biases about different mm -hmm. groups of people, often racially motivated biases. And there's a very long, well-established, in my opinion, sort of historic record of concerns about muslim men versus christian men when i think mm -hmm. it's fair to say that christian men have done more harm in the history of the world than muslim men so um yeah th those are just ways i think that like and that's not to totally reject what you're what you're doing there but to say you know i think we could find common ground on this by recognizing that the the original rejection was of saying islam is somehow a world apart from all the other religions rather right. than you know, a religion and they're therefore able to be done in this way. And also, I think we could fairly say there are parts of the current Islamic world that are in a particularly reactionary place. Oh, and absolutely. that is that is a that is a problem. Right. But it is to me much more of a contingent social reality rather than something endemic. It seems to me to Islam itself. So, OK, yeah. well, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. No, yeah, I think all of that is totally fair. I think underlying all of that is, um, as we're you know we're dancing around sort of this like, what is woke, what is anti woke, um, mm -hmm. if there, if it's sort of about a um, an argument that we, I don't want to be, I'm not related to Ben by the way, but the facts don't care about your feelings thing, which really you know took off for people. Um, uh -huh. if, if it's something like that argument of like, well, you can you know you can dance around all this stuff all you want. But um, you're not going to be able to get away from the truth. The truth is just going to keep finding you and, and mugging you about, about these things. Um, it, it reminds me of like someone like Barack Obama. Um, and the funny thing is someone like George W. Bush and Barack Obama said the same exact thing on this topic that we're talking about. There was like no daylight mm -hmm. between them. And I don't for one instance think that they their intention was bad by doing this by by repeating these kinds of things you know there's in philosophy we call this a noble lie where you are are lying knowingly but you're doing it for some what you feel is a noble cause and some you know consequentialist outcome is going to be better by doing this um for me and i think for someone like sam i won't really speak for him it has always just been a political difference that that strategy while noble is not going to work is going to backfire um, and then, you know, what really sort of got me, what gets me on a lot of these topics is it, I can't seem to escape disallowing certain conversations and certain topics to be talked about in certain ways in public that won't result in the complete silencing and snuffing out of those same voices within the communities themselves, because how mm -hmm. do you deal, like they become very inconvenient people. Um, you know, I'm friends with a lot of them, the Yasmin Muhammad's of the world and Ali Rizvi's and some of them, are, they're all over the spectrum. Armin Navabi is like, they all have different strategies and different temperaments about what they're doing, uh, but they become very inconvenient for people. Uh, Majid Nawaz himself, obviously we could talk about the direction he's gone recently. I think it's relevant, but mm -hmm. um, he 
saying like he you know he lived it if, it, if people don't know his story he was in his Betakir, he was in in an egyptian prison for four years after 9 11 for basically trying to bring about the caliphate um he's telling you like guys no listen like i lived it of course ideology has something to do with this but good news like we can we can work on it there's reform to do here but even admitting that you're trying to reform something starts with the premise that there you know was a problem to fix in the first place so you're kind of always mm -hmm. in this trap of, about having to talk about these things uh, but everything you said is totally valid and i never dismiss the trepidation or the fear of doing it it's why i always something like you know, i wrote a short essay on this but something like the example i already brought up about you and i sitting here saying women should, mm -hmm. should be able to show their hair in public as a moral mm -hmm. precept just like we, just, we sat in a philosophy seminar for three years and we came out and that was <laughs> that was our big declaration. Pretty easy one. But hey, women should be able to show their hair. That should be really easy, frankly, for just about everyone on earth to be able to come out with that, with a deep philosophical sort of understanding. Um, mm -hmm. But what it shouldn't do is demand the political strategy that comes from uttering that truth or even thinking that truth, because from that truth, you can still do this. You can still say, while that may be true, and we wish Saudi Arabia or Iran had different policies about this, we, and this is maybe borrowing some of your, your stances and admitting the trepidation of it, we, and I'm talking as sort of like white Western Americans, even men having this conversation on this podcast, we're in a terrible position strategically to be the ones mm -hmm. to broadcast this message because of our history of of racism because of our history of imperialism in because of our addiction to oil because of our missteps with you know the cold war and funding bin laden you could like list a million yeah. reasons why we are maybe not even just like the imperfect sort of you know voices to broadcast this message but like we'll actually do damage like we'll backfire it you can make that argument i don't buy all of that i just sort of straw man or sorry steel man an argument mm -hmm. that i don't particularly uh, endorse but you could totally do it you could come away from that easy moral conversation about women should be able to show their hair, which in, does imply at least a little bit that, that uh, the culture or religion, wherever you pin that practice on, is one you don't think is right morally. That's fine. But you don't mm -hmm. have to go bomb Iran the moment that you utter it. You don't have to become Donald mm -hmm. Trump. You don't have to put on a MAGA hat and like close the borders. You could still get to that total, like all, almost all the political strategic stances that you and I probably recognize as conservative or liberal or neoliberal or whatever we want to say are really all still on the table. And I think mm -hmm. all of that, and, and I think that's true for so many topics. I mean, we've been talking about particularly, it's a good one, Islam. And I think a lot of the culture war stuff really did accelerate after 9-11 because this one was such a, um, uh, I don't know, blind spot in our society or sore. It was just a sore that was about, it was just bound to happen this way in a lot of ways. But so many of these conversations about race and IQ and policing and all these things that are becoming these huge wedge issues, I think are, are overstated. It's why, you know, we, we had some pre-conversations that I'm not necessarily woke or anti-woke or whatever. We could talk about these things. I think they're all just getting so overblown where most of the times like, hey, it's all still on the table, everybody. <laughs> like we, we could talk about these things um, in sort of the, the quiet calmness of a philosophy seminar and all of the political fights that we get into after, they're all still on the table. We don't need to be drawing these ridiculous lines in the sand anymore. That That's, I don't know if that responds to some of your stuff, but yeah. No, that's really, I mean, it's interesting. And I, 
I, I want to say I'm not 100% convinced that we can fully pull apart the like philosophical mm. debates and the political aspects of it and the personal aspects either. As you pointed out with Nawaz, for example, he's yeah. headed deep into conspiracy territory now. And I think there's something to be said about like trying to understand why several anti-woke people have spiraled in that very similar kind of way uh, post-election. But I want to I'm really enjoying freestyling here with you. And I know that we're way off of like what we would plan to talk about. But like you mentioned this idea of it seems very easy to you that like women should be allowed to show their hair. And I generally like ethically as you know, as an ethicist, I agree with you. Women should be allowed to show their hair for sure. Right. I'm curious what you would say about the question. Should women be allowed to cover their hair? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course they should. Yeah. So so what do you think about the situation in, in France right now where they're sort of pushing to limit that kind of freedom as a way to sort of curb the what they see as the islamophizing yeah. right of their culture this, or something this is great now yeah now we're really going to get into the weeds this this brings up Karl popper is one of my favorite thinkers and he's always mm -hmm. he's got these great old sort of nuggets where he put he calls it ruinous to philosophy the the notion of obsessing over definitions and what words mean and that so that's why i've sort of already tried to not do it mm -hmm. much, um, but talks about problems. And you just raised a really good one. Like, what should we do about this? That's a really, it's a difficult one because what you bring up is sort of like, what rights do, what is a culture, I guess? And sort of like, what rights do cultures have? And ultimately cultures and religions and nations, you know, they're not real. We just make them up, but they mean something to us. And there is a feedback loop on it. On that individual level, they mean a lot to us as people. So we imbue meaning to them. It's hard to keep in mind. I think you said it well in the last time, separating the philosophy and the personal is difficult and the political, and I'm kind of doing it here. We like separating what a culture is and what it means to us versus vice versa is really, really complicated because it, there's another way to phrase your question. Like does France has a culture and they could say, well, our culture doesn't, you know, we let women show their hair. Like that's something that's important to us and it means a lot to us. And so, you know, you're, you're in our nation now and in our territory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get on board. That's what it means to us. And that's kind of a deal that, you know, you could talk about this. It's, it's like, you can use the same argument that the it's people funny would though, use. Right? Right. It's funny. Totally funny. Which is because you're sliding into the kind of cultural relativism that the woke exactly. that's, that some forms of the woke and then and some like liberals, too. Like if you, if you want to really look right, part of the history of liberalism is saying, you know, we're going to stop fighting all these religious wars by saying we're not going to like decide what are the good and bad religions anymore. We're going to let everybody practice all their different religions. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, oh, wait, are we really going to let everybody practice all of their different religions or are we going to like make it much harder for certain? I'm like. What is the fundamental difference, for example, between Saudi Arabia saying we're not going to allow women to cover uncover their heads because that is our culture and it's very meaningful right. to us. Right. And France saying the exact opposite as a secular society. That's great. I mean, it's perfect because this is the, and you could I think the listeners could already sense the black hole that we're going to walk into, which is why. And you and I are like, if I'm if I'm anti anything, it's anti certainty, because mm -hmm. the way that you want to you want to do this, you want to argue this if you're France or if you're a liberal who didn't disagree when I said women should be able to show their hair is that you want to point to something objective. You want to be like, mm, that's not just like my opinion as an American or as a Frenchman. Mm -hmm. That's like just is that's that's objective. I'm plucking that out of the universe somewhere. And so Sam, as we've mentioned a few times, he wrote a book called um, The Moral Landscape, where he tried to do this, frankly, 
he cheats. There's a, there's always a cheat. Oh, yes. So people, <laughs> he so cheats people a lot on the meta ethics right, side. For people sure. cheat on meta ethics, and it's not bad. I think it's I think it's a uh, it's a better political book than it is a philosophy book, frankly, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if your listeners, you know, David Hume is the the is ought mm-hmm. question, famously for the the ones who need a refresher, is David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, said there's no description of the way the universe is that tells us how the universe ought to be. It's famously called the it ought distinction, is ought distinction. Um, and I think as a, as someone who studies it and everything, it is right. It is impassable. There is no description of the way the universe is that tells us how the universe ought to be. But, and here's the big, but so some, some people who are, you know, cultural relativists want to just stop right there being like, there, you said it, like nothing's right and wrong. It's all the same. That's just France's opinion versus Saudi Arabia's opinion. Fine. Mm -hmm. Like that's right. Philosophically, I would say, ultimately, like if you want to, you know, put your hand on a, on a stove burner and it hurts, but you like that and call that pleasure. Who am I to say that you're wrong? Like there, there, there's nothing to really do that. We, but we are embodied <laughs> like creatures and we are, in, we're in a society. So when you shift the conversation, as, as I was trying to do with like the hair example and say all the political strategies are still on the table, it's almost the same move being like, fine, David Hume, you're right. You're right. Saudi Arabia, and France do this differently, and there's nothing we can look for outside of ourselves that proves one is right versus the other. But let's try. Let's like pretend we can, basically, and try our best to make some secular argument and lean on, I don't know, you know, I like I love Carl Sagan. I always talk about the bridge that I build from is to ought is his famous observation of we are a way for the universe to know itself, which mm-hmm. is this beautiful poetic description, which sounds like poetry, but actually... It's pure science. It's like we just pulling in all the mysteriousness of consciousness have the ability to make coherent patterns out of the world and predict its behavior. If we call that knowing, <laughs> sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. We, we can know a little bit. Einstein has that great quote that the, the most incomprehensible part of the universe is that it is comprehensible, at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he can find a tiny bit maybe. of it. But if that, we'll, we'll find maybe, out. Maybe. Yeah, we'll find, we're probably wrong. But, we, you know, we could predict patterns. And, and if that's what makes us kind of unique and special is that we are this way for the universe to know itself. Listen, there's nothing in what he said that we are a way that says we ought to do it. But to me, it seems like the only game in town is to do that. What else is there to do other than for us to be, you know, enact and embody and take? It sounds like an opportunity the way that Sagan's putting it, right? Again, that's the cheat. It's the same cheat Sam does, same cheat everybody does when they use for look for a case for objective morality. But uh, if, you, if you claim that I just did all of that and got to like, well, we are a way for the universe to know itself and that gets me started on the is-ought question and I, you know, we could do it all here, but that gets me to this point of like, well, none of us chose to be here and you know, a woman should be able to show her hair because it's this like fundamental right. Um, she should be able to dress however she wants. I don't know. We, we could get there in all kinds of different ways without ever invoking God. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, there's always a logical cheat there. That ultimately is what you want to argue mm-hmm. is the difference between France and Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia says the women can't show her hair because God says it. And that's mm-hmm. the end of the discussion where France might say, like, that's our culture. Or if you really want to be one of these nerdy, like objective morality chasers, you could try it and be like, listen, I just did it with this like long dance and women should be able to show her hair morally. And, you know, there you go. Mm-hmm. But but okay. it's a black hole. It's a black. And, then, and I'm admitting and, I, and I'm giving you like totally you are right. Ultimate, <laughs> ultimately, ultimately. 
it is a bit of a of a bait and switch, and it and it's subjective. I mean, it's I, I'm I'm a I'm a David Hume as much as I want him to be wrong, he's not. And so ultimately, it's the same argument, but politically. And if we're going to sort of again take a bunch of givens as just like like a priori givens that a secular society is what we're aiming for, well then, okay, France wins. You know, like what can I say? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hope. Longtime listeners are laughing their heads off at home because this is very oh, yeah. uh, well. Because I, I am very interested in meta ethics and did like my master's thesis mm. on meta ethics, and then specifically, I am a moral realist of the non-natural variety. Oh, which means oh, okay. so like I'm I'm very weird. Um, but I you know I think that there are objective moral truths that exist in the universe mm. independent of our cognition of them. Um, and I I even read. David Hume as being a cognitivist. There's debates about whether or not he's a realist mm-hmm. or an anti-realist, actually. And I, because obviously I want him to agree with me, interpret him as agreeing mm-hmm. with me. Um, so I, you know, all of this is very funny to me. And I, there's so many like threads that I want to pull on in everything that you just said. So for example, there's fun debates about like, is it, it's very weird when sometimes we feel like we have to, in order to answer a normative question, like should be allowed to cover the people's heads or not, right? Mm-hmm. We jump up to the meta level to try to talk about, well, what is the nature of that moral truth that we're then going to try to claim we have an argument for? And it, I, it, I think it can really go bo- you know, all sorts of different ways in the sense that I think pretty much any, almost any meta ethical view can be paired with almost any normative view. So it, yeah. is, is, there's, a, there's a sliding separation between them. Um, so that's just one part of it. But the other part is, I absolutely agree with you about where you got to on the difference is secular arguments are based on good moral arguments, in my opinion, whereas mm-hmm. arguments that directly appeal to God as a premise, I think are fundamentally flawed and lead to yeah immoral judgments, which is not to say that secular arguments can also and do also lead to bad moral judgments. Um, But one of the reasons that I think secular society is objectively preferable to a theocracy is that religion tends to enshrine a lot of immoral behaviors under a sort of sanctity shield that makes it hard to address them um you know which is again every everything i say there can always be sort of the counterpoint of it's hard to make progress ethically in secular societies too Mm -hmm. right you see how much things like racism persist in secular societies and such like that for example so uh, but i do think you're right that the way we avoid that trap of of cultural relativism and i do really think it is a -hmm. trap that liberalism fell into and struggles to get out of is sort of distinctions like can you make a consistent like argument that doesn't appeal to a premise that is highly um individualized in a religious kind of way for example it seems to me and i've talked about this before with other like religious guests where if you have a, a good religious ethical idea there has to be a corresponding secular argument that could justify it using you know, harm reduction or respect for autonomy or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. I always feel like if it's a good argument, it has to be able to be translatable out of that cultural uh, assumption that it is originally, that is sort of centered in, in that kind of way. So mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sympathetic to you on that. Now, this is also funny to me because something I talked about with um, Oliver Traldi last week was the sort of objective subjective divide being central to the culture war. And mm-hmm. I think this is really the case, but I've noticed generally speaking, when we get into the discussions of objective and subjective, it's usually about 
empirical truth, right? What is the reality of the world? And it's much less often uh, explicitly about meta-ethical truth. But mm -hmm. it does seem to me, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, that there is a lot of underlying debate about objective value to some extent. And like, yeah. what are the objective moral obligations we have towards other individuals? And this is where one where I think things actually flip a bit, right? Because I think the, the woke tend to be more subjectivist when it comes to empirical claims or more skeptical of objective, uh, objective claims, I should say. But I do think they tend to be very on board with it is objectively wrong to harm people on the basis of race, for example. Whereas I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Do you feel like the sort of anti-woke world tends to be a little more subjectivist when it comes to morality? Like mm. they, they tend to be a little bit more, they wanna be hands off. And what they're angry about with the woke is that they are trying to enforce their view of objective morality onto everyone else. Yeah, I mean, that seems like it echoes some of the free speech absolutism kind of like Mm -hmm. classical libertarianism stuff that that i'm not a fan of at all that that seems to come along with a lot of the anti-woke um fervor but yeah i thought that was really interesting i haven't listened to that episode with the subjective subjective split um i think i i let you know in a sort of forecast i've i've been trying to really think deeply about wokeness to prepare for this because i think you reached out and i think you've called me like anti-woke adjacent which is totally mm -hmm. fine i'm like whatever <laughs> um but i've you know in my effort to be to make sure that was accurate i was like wait do i even understand like what philosophically like what this wokeness mm -hmm. thing is and that, that's interesting the objective subjective split because what i was finding and i'm guessing your guest was was saying the the woke kind of stance is objective maybe like a more of a deontological like this is always right and wrong kind of stance and the other one is because I, 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 I mean even before you answer the reason I, I asked that as a question is I was getting to wokeness no matter what I did <laughs> and this is mm -hmm. kind of and this is why I was like oh I'm anti-certainty because if you choose one too firmly you'll end up in some awful place that sounds a little like wokeness to me because um, mm -hmm. it's, it's something like and I, I was using that the question I was using to probe it, and if this makes any sense to people, like I said, it's still sort of an, in the incubator of my mind as an argument, is that the famous philosophical question of mathematics, is mathematics invented or discovered? It's mm -hmm. a great one to talk about. You ask it at parties and see how it goes. It's awesome. But this notion, I think there's something deeper there. And you know, none of the wokeness stuff that gets sort of the most mocked or even championed is as sophisticated as sort of what I'm saying here. It's oftentimes teenage versions of this, but teenagers, and I work with teenagers with this things called the National High School Ethics Poll, are awesome mm -hmm. and very philosophical. Mm -hmm. They just don't really have the words for too. it yet. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. My, my finale of season two, I just recorded it, is with a team from Lawrenceville from this year. So excited. They, oh, they were awesome. Right. And they basically, in my in my, like conversation they just broke into just like a debate amongst themselves and I was, I was like let them go I was like this is what it sounds like high schoolers are capable of this it was awesome but anyway um a lot of the woke stuff it doesn't sound like what I'm gonna say here but fundamentally I think to really like understand it and try to um uh, give it its philosophical um credit I think in some ways what we're seeing with wokeness is the deep struggling of what we're all confronting with as sort of like humanity of are we discovered or are we invented? It's almost mm -hmm. a free will question. I was swapping out identity for mathematics there, especially a lot of teenagers. They're like, 
am I inventing my identity or am I just discovering it? Like, mm-hmm. ooh, there's a label for this thing. Am I punk or am I inventing my punkness? And it's kind of mm-hmm. cool either way. You could become like very, you know, dogmatic either way. Um, and I see it both ways in the wokeness because you almost want to say they are rejecting the discovering part. That two plus two equals five thing that was going around in wokeness like wasn't a surprise to me that it was a mathematical analogy being like, we're even rejecting mathematics being discovered. It's invented. You know, there's a school that it's a fictionalism that all of math is sort of just like invented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that almost maybe sounds intuitively woke to people being like, yeah, we're rejecting all of that. The gender that you said I was born with, that's false. Like everything's false. I could be whatever I want today. I could be, I could have different pronouns today. And setting aside sort of the almost like vindictiveness of the like bully pulpit that this creates, maybe which relates to a capitalism thing we could talk about. Um, there's something just stop right there. There's something admirable. And I think very like, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like classically teenage angsty, like the kids are all right. They're doing what they've always done, which is reject kind of the deterministic universe and demand that they are going to reinvent themselves and everything around them. And that's how it ought to be. And so the problem with taking that full stance is that that bumps into reality very quickly. You, of course, with something like I already just sort of touched uh, a landmine of the gender thing and the sex thing, that immediately bumps into like, wait, like, okay, you can say what your pronouns are, but like, you've got, you've got a male genitalia and like nature, just like, that's, that's just what that is. Like you're creating sperm. And so like nature thinks you're a man. And so like you immediately bump into like that well, one wasn't invented. Society assigns you the term male because of that genitalia. It would be right, right. Nature, already... no opinion whatsoever on the subject. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like the, the split of gender and, and biological sex or whatever. And, and then the language of that gets, that's mushed together and people get way too energized about that. As you just pointed out, like it's all a little, Silly. And I'm just, and I'm trying to make it more sophisticated of like, okay, like if you just go too strong in the invented or too strong in the discovered side of the question of identity or who we are or what culture is or what morality is, like we're saying, you're going to bump into the other one really quickly. And so if you start with like, this is all invented, this is all invented. And so I get to invent myself. And that's mm-hmm. the way the universe should be. You bump into these things that are just mm-hmm. cold, hard truths of reality. And then you get these very annoying Ben Shapiro pushbacks and you get these annoying conversations between college kids who are angsty and taking this kind of stance who want to be a punk today and be, you know, a goth tomorrow and be a woman today and be a man tomorrow. Like that it's, it's a pushback that I feel like, again, is admirable of wanting to invent ourselves. I think as humans, we want to invent ourselves, but then we struggle because we point, we, we run into things that feel deterministic, meaning discovered that they were there for us to discover, whether that's our genetics or our height <laughs> or maybe mm-hmm. our biological sex. And now, of course, of course, what's really interesting now and also dangerous, of course, is technology is changing a lot of this where that vision of things if that's really admirable, what I said, and that's a universe we'd rather live in, a universe where you can invent yourself every day, like people play video games for that exact reason. You can play World of Warcraft and play it as, you know, uh, an, a female ogre, no matter what you look like. And you could, as best as you can, get into the mentality of that. Of course, the technology at this point means you can't live in there forever. You can't really form these deep relationships, but that's coming. And then, you know, plastic surgery, you could change your body and you could alter these things and invent yourself. 
But mm. so I just did that whole thing as sort of wokeness is a rejection of the discovered and everything is invented, which also feels very sort of like cultural relativist and everything. But there also seems to be this other way to get there through the entire opposite of that, meaning everything is discovered and nothing is invented. And my blackness or my whiteness or that is this inherent thing that I can't change and I can't escape. As a white person, I can only be racist and I can only sort of be this way. And there's also weirdly as a teenager, at least for me, like there was an attraction to that stance as well of being like, ooh, let me take this, you know, quiz on BuzzFeed and figure out, you know, what, you know, Snoopy character I am or something to be like, ooh, I've discovered a part of myself. Um, you know, what astrological right. sign am I? I can't change that, right? Like, let me discover that. And sort of this this um, new age kind of wokey sort of merge, I think is about discovering who you are. Everyone goes on these journeys to discover who they are, not invent, but discover, and you find out who you are. Maybe it's even a genetic one. Maybe you're doing like 23 and me and being like, Ooh, I've got, you know, <laughs> ancestors from this, this region. And now I'm going to adopt. Now I get to adopt their cultures because that doesn't, you know, uh, that's not a sin against cultural appropriation because look, my DNA says I can do it. So there's almost like you can get to wokeness by choosing one side or other of the famous sort of invented versus discovered truths of whether it's morality or mathematics or identity or culture or anything, um, when you're way too certain about it. It's a kind of fundamentalist approach, but you can get there either way, which I think it's why it's so confusing for people to challenge. And I don't know what the anti-woke stance is either, because I don't know where it fits on any of those spectrums, but that was me trying to like prepare to mm -hmm. defend wokeness. And the truth is, I think both of those are also admirable in a way. One of them is almost hyper, hyper religious, which would be, I think, the discovered one, right? Like mm -hmm. discovering the world that God created and you're discovering kind of the deterministic world and that's unchangeable. And the other one is almost like hyper anarchistic being like, there are no rules, everything's invented. We, we must have free will and I could be whatever I want today. Um, and both of them are just wrong. <laughs> both of them are, are wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff there. So first off, I want to fully agree with you that I think what we see or what we are seeing here is the continued playing out of the kind of existential post existential crisis that we're all in, where we've all been disabused of the notion that like God or the universe is going to assign meaning and value to us. And then we're mm -hmm. having to figure out what we do next. And that's a, um, you know, present presents a crisis for any consciousness, I think. Um, now, I think I want to complicate your picture a little bit here because it seems to me, first of all, I want to say, I think something that happens in these debates and I want to try to avoid us doing it though. It's hard. It's very hard to do because they're related concepts. I think that certainty or as some people would put it like absolutism, right? If you say, mm -hmm. I know the absolute truth, right? Or something that often gets conflated with objective or discovered, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be the case that, I believe that there is an objective moral truth, but I'm not certain, right? I'm not, I don't have an apps or, or that, that truth is not absolute potentially. There could be a plurality of objective truths and there's a tension between them. So I, I think what I see a lot of times happening is the debate about objective and subjective truth gets conflated with this debate about what people feel about the level of certainty we should have about certain claims. So I think that's one issue at, at play here. Now, that being said, 
I think both sides of this divide have a very mixed view about things like objective and subjective. As you are saying, you can get there in both ways. And I think that's because just like real human beings, right? We have a mixed view about like what things are objective and subjective. And I'm going to torture you with that later in the show. You don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I think that um, the woke believe, you know, certain things are objective, though I would say that in general, they are, they are more skeptical of, ob- of claims to objectivity because they're coming out of a tradition that is, I think, genuinely and I think reasonably skeptical of the kinds of naive appeals to objectivity that, that define modernism in the period before them. Um, so, like, I do think there is more like subjectivism on the woke side, but even just looking at the like gender issue, for example, you know, some people will say, I'm inventing myself. Others will say, I discovered myself, right? I discovered that I am really this other person. And I think those are both genuine. And I don't think that like either of them is a cop-out or a rationalization because identity is really weird. And it is this kind of half-invented, half-discovered mix that we're all doing over the course of our lives. So now, where I am most, I think, in many ways, sympathetic to the woke as a futurist is like, I want an identity that everyone is free to do whatever they want with at any mm-hmm. given point in time, right? Like, I love the Culture War series, the, the Culture War, just the Culture series, right? So Ian Banks's um, futurist world where people can change their genders at any point, their sex at any point, you know, people can become amorphous clouds if they prefer to. Like, that to me should be the liberal dream, right? The liberal dream is to enable people to be free to do whatever they want with their identities in that kind of way. Now, of course, you always run up against the potential for harm. And so a lot of these debates end up becoming, you know, can you prove that allowing people to be transgender is causing harm or something like that? And they'll, you know, the anti-trans folks will claim, you know, we can prove this in various kinds of ways. And so those debates play out in those worlds. But I think I think we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice if we just think, um, you know, woke sub- are the subjectivists and the anti-woke mm-hmm. are the objectivists. And I think it's, I, it, it also really frustrates me a little bit. And, and something that I, I've brought up um, before is, I think that, uh, this, you know, maybe this is true of both the woke and the anti-woke, but I deeply experience the anti-woke weaponizing philosophical debates like this, taking a hard problem like is math discovered or invented and saying anybody who says that two plus two isn't doesn't equal four is out to kill truth and like not <laughs> just out to kill truth, but out to kill truth so they can undermine society. And that's where it starts to spiral into conspiracy worlds. Um, and so... I don't know if it's an asymmetric problem or a symmetric problem, but I think I would I would love to see people stop trying to radicalize other people by claiming yes. a different group has a different view about a philosophical problem and that makes them very dangerous and evil in this kind of way. Yeah, no, that that's great. Um, I think what you said there at the end is great because my instinct and my impulse is always... Um, this anti and, and pro or whatever it is, is the wrong framing. And you're right. Objective and subjective is probably also the wrong framing. Um, I wish if there's something like the anti-woke, they were more focused on helping the woke. If you think they've got that wrong, um, is there a way for you, as I'm trying to do here, to have compassion for the, the impulse to do it, the impulse to reject two plus two equals four, Without, you know, of course, there's like the math nerds, and I know some of the arguments that can say it equals two plus two equals five. I, you know, I, 
it's fine to to um, suggest that some people are weaponizing the argument on on all sides of this. There's like a bully mm-hmm. pulpit to it on mm-hmm. on uh, the woke side in a lot of regards with capitalism at the moment and sort of like what mm-hmm. sells tickets and how to write books, but it's happening on the other side as well. There's there's a way to weaponize it on both sides, but if you could start with a place of charity and compassion for why someone might want to utter that or might want that kind of future that doesn't like you like you know phrasing it the way you put it of like they're just out to like destroy truth for what ends like really like for what Mm -hmm. ends do they think i recently put this up because i actually also preparing for this what's so frustrating is i'm trying to give the intention of uh, you know a good intention of these outcomes um to everybody in this conversation that everybody is trying to forge a world that you know is is decent mm-hmm. and what i disagree with if there's something that you know there's some woke stance is again their strategy of how to get there and that's literally an argument that i'm making of intentions matter when you're talking about sort of figuring mm-hmm. out how to proceed and what gets very frustrating is things like hearing that arguments that that seem woke that are, that tell you intentions don't matter harm was inflicted and intentions don't matter and this happened recently with the n-word and the new york times people being it doesn't matter why i said it intentions don't matter you say it you're out (laughs) and it's just like you know okay if we're gonna go within it if we're gonna go with an intentions don't matter argument it's gonna make it really difficult for my job to defend you guys where i'm like i think your intentions matter and even in that conversation i think your intentions matter and i think your intentions are actually good there it almost harkens back to something you said earlier of like we have to be careful in all of these conversations because there's a long history of things spiraling into death camps, right? Like, so I think your intentions matter and your intentions that you immediately want to fire that guy uh, are, are good, but hear me out for a second. This is going to backfire. And that's literally an intentions versus outcomes means and ends conversation that they're telling me doesn't like, isn't allowed. And that's where it's getting a little bit, um, banging your head against the wall as someone like me, who's maybe anti-woke adjacent being like, I'm trying to help, but I'm having trouble getting through. And some people um, Mm -hmm. break at that point. And maybe that's what we're seeing with some of the anti-wokers whose names we can mention, but we don't need to. Everyone sort of knows who they are, who've broken to a point of just like ridiculous, unhelpful, like burn it all down. Let's have a civil war stuff, which is, you know, um, a, a little lazy to me. If you think these people are so dumb and they got it so wrong, well, you think you're so smart, like, let's try to help them. <laughs> let's try to figure this out and help them. Um, and what I'd like to avoid doing is, you know, I have some friends who are like, listen, I just can't help them anymore. They're just going to have to go through a lot of pain and then they'll realize they're wrong. And then we'll just like, I'll be happy again and find out what truth is again. Um, I'd rather avoid that. Like, I don't want to throw anyone, anybody to the wolves. Uh, even if I think, you know, like, uh, that's where this could be heading. Like you can fool yourself into thinking because there's so much sunk cost at this point. If you're a woke person out there who thinks the New York Times guy should be fired, or maybe there's a quiet voice in your head thinking like, that's a little weird, right? Like you should be able to quote a rap song. No? Okay, cool. Like I'm not going to say it. Like if you just, if you're one of those people right now who's thinking like, all right, I'm going to double down on this being like, yeah, fire him, fire this guy, cancel culture this, like let's go forward with this. It's hard to find the off switch because what becomes very captivating, and you've already mentioned sort of the personal and psychological aspects, something that happens to all of us is we convince ourselves that we were right all along and confirmation bias kicks in and you're going to start to see things manifesting in the world. 
that you know, you're going to convince yourself that prove your point that you were right all along. It could be a segregated, you know, bl blacks and whites only water fountain at a, at a college that you can find some, like you got there through some weird argument about mm -hmm. safe spaces or something, but you're going to convince yourself that, that like, look, it worked where really, you know, like where do you find the handbrakes to be like, wait a minute, how do I step out of my own confirmation bias and be like, well, no, no, no. Like the segregationists were wrong. And it's weird to be arguing with people about who was right and wrong in the civil war at this point still, but mm -hmm. like, how do we find those handbrakes? And so um, to maybe again, show compassion for both sides, there are people who are giving up the, um, chase of helping and even sort of like reaching out to the other side uh if you're anti-woke to be like no 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 woke guys you got it wrong it's gonna backfire here's why hear me out because and it's hard to disagree with this they do seem to be putting up these kind of rhetorical walls against people like me i don't know what they think of me but there's a there's a version of it that's like he worked with sam harris he's a bigot i'm not talking to him you know like there's a version of that that could happen or, you know, he's, he worked with Majinoise at this point. Like, I'm not talking to him. Who knows? Um, where I'm, like, literally trying to, my best to remain compassionate to, to that world. And, again, you've seen it happen on the other side. Let's just say his name, James Lindsay, like, lighting fires to people who, you know, he shouldn't be lighting fires to, like, Kathy Young or whatever in those weird arguments of, like, he probably... Anybody if he's trying to yeah, build... Well, prisons, which it doesn't seem me, like me included. Like, me included. And I won't, like, reveal all, like, our DMs that when they, those happen. But, like, no, like, he, and he's probably... It's unfair to pick on him. He might be struggling with other things. But, like, um, that's that, that's a breaking point. Like, he he's become what he hates, right? He's become... He's stared into the abyss too long, and he's now, he's now unhelpful. So, I don't know. I don't know if any of that made any sense, but... Well, no, there's, there's a lot in there that I think is valuable. Let's put aside James for a second. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Sorry I brought him up. <laughs> no, I mean, well, it is really important because like, you know, if I were to say my intention was to undercut radical wokeness in the world, right? And I, I was to say, that's my goal. It, my actions would be the exact opposite, it seems like, of what James Lindsay does. I still want to give him the benefit of the doubt that that is right. his intention and he thinks that he's doing it effectively in some kind of way. I just can't possibly imagine how he could still believe that at this point, except as you say, because he's spiraled into a very um, unhelpful way of understanding the world. But bringing this to intentions more broadly, I think this is a really interesting part of these debates because... Uh, you know, first of all, right, to quote the, the historically illiberal individual John Stuart Mill, right, intentions don't matter for assessing the ethics of your actions, only for assessing you personally as an individual. I don't fully agree with that, but it is amusing to me that that is a classically liberal view that and, and like. What he's saying there is you did the, you did a bad thing, right? You did a wrong thing. You harmed people. If that wasn't your intentions, maybe that will ameliorate our judgments of you as a person. But you still need to like acknowledge you did a wrong thing and not keep doing it. Um, and I think coming from the anti-woke perspective to sort of try to steel man the perspective of why they are resistant to appeals to intentions sometimes, because I think it's true that there's a lengthy history of certain parts of society, certain individuals in certain segments of society, usually wealthier 
for example, mm -hmm. getting away with more because they can make it an excuse about intentions or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Right down to the laws being such that, you know, laws for white collar individuals are more likely to require proof of intent, which is much harder to prove and therefore makes it harder to hold those individuals accountable. So I think what the woke would say is the excuse of, you know, that was not my intentions has been so frequently used that we need to not make it an acceptable excuse anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not, I mean, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that's where I think they're coming from. My, my you know, my position is somewhere more in the middle as always, right. It's a, it's a complicated thing, right. Ethics mm -hmm. is always complicated. I, I did an article that's coming out soon on um, Gina from star Wars and her mm -hmm. being uh, canceled for, for posting, um, you know, anti-Semitic memes. Um, and part of the article is about uh, the fact that Barry Weiss wrote a defense of her that was like, we have to take intentions into account, right? And I, I agree that we should take the intentions into account, but that has to be coupled with her understanding what you did post was genuinely anti-Semitic and understanding why and understanding why that causes harm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, it's not valuable, I think, necessarily to both sides, but I think, you know, it's always an easy move for people to say the members of my group did not intend to do that thing and they didn't mm -hmm. intend to cause harm in this way. But it's very easy at the same time to look at other groups and think, you know, they're clearly intending to cause harm. This idea they're presenting is absurd. And the only reason they would be presenting it is because they want to collapse Western civilization or something, <laughs> right? Which brings us to the conspiracy theories side of things. And I know we, we were going to talk about that at the beginning of the episode and now we're talking about it at the end of the episode. <laughs> but like part of the problem that I feel like I see with that is that is causing a spiral on the anti-woke side that is connected to the spiral that is happening in the right wing in our country with the GOP is that they have gotten so far into the extreme language of this culture war. And I, you know, you pointed to 9-11. I think this goes back to the 60s. I think this goes back mm -hmm. to the right era. Yeah. You know, and, but like, but like specifically the civil rights and the Southern strategy. To me, the mm -hmm. Southern strategy was the birth of an era of conspiracy theories on the right, specifically racially tar charged conspiracy theories, right? And I think you see that playing out now in the IDW. And one of the common themes about conspiracy theories is you have to see the they, right? The leaders of the conspiracy as being demons right as being so deeply evil in this kind of way to as part of the explanation for why they would be engaged in these nefarious plans so i mean i'm curious do you feel like there is a kind of blind uh, a blind spot in that world at this point where it's hard to get back to a place of seeing why the people on the woke side of things you know would have a good reason for being skeptical of certain appeals to intention yeah no, I mean, the, the simple answer is yes, there's definitely a blind spot. Um, it's what I've been trying to do in this conversation about, um, you know, uh, <laughs> ironically giving them the, the benefit of the doubt of the intentions. But um, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I was thinking of something as you were as you were laying out sort of the conspiracies and, and the they because, um, yeah, so I just I put out this episode that, that went through sort of a personal story of a friend that I that I lost through them, and I've been really interested for a lot of reasons. Oh, thank you. Um, and, really great. Yeah, episode. awesome. And he's an awesome musician too, so go find his music. Um, <laughs> and we, um, so, so I think I think about them a, a lot, conspiracy theories, and, and where they come from, and what's attracted to them. And I think the most um, 
important thing that came out of that episode that we stumbled upon is this notion of empowerment. And this is going to relate to some of the stuff we talked about earlier. Um, people want control. This goes back to the invented and di- discovered question, all of this. I mean, as humans, we, we, we want to feel agency in the world that we're in. We didn't ask to be here. It's a strange existence, right? Like we just blinked on one day and then there was, <laughs> we were in this world. Um, but we want to we want to see our presence in it. We want to confirm our presence in it. We want to be able to like, you know, turn on the lamp and it turns on. There's like a satisfaction in engaging with the world around you and having it respond in a feedback loop. And that is getting incredibly um, mm-hmm. difficult, economically especially difficult for people to feel. And I mean really feel. Um, the economic systems that we've built, the sort of neoliberal world and, and, and globalized economy is so weird. You, we feel like I was talking about this recently with my, my mom, ironically, and this, the, I don't even remember the context of it, but this kind of image that I think a lot of us, probably all of us have in our heads in a way of like, you go and you feed the meter of the world, of the economic system. Mm-hmm. You feed the meter, you don't love it, but you're just like feeding the meter. And then it's, you know, you get your prizes at the end of the day. Maybe you pull the lever, you get a little prizes, you go out for a coffee mm-hmm. or see a movie. Like you're a consumer and a pro and a, and a, a consumer and a producer, sorry, a producer and a consumer of this system. And you feed the world and you get things out of it. And it almost feels as impersonal as that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways these days, because like, what does it, you know, what does it mean to go out and participate in a job or, or right now where a lot of us Very, are home, like pushing, pushing, pix- <laughs> yeah, like pushing pixels around and you're doing something in the world. You don't even know who benefits from it. Like you might be making a product and you'll labor. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, you're super alienated from your labor. I'm digging it. From your labor and from the people who consume your product. Like you could be whoever, this microphone that I'm talking into right now, I have no idea who made it. And that that might sound like trivial, right? Like to us, 22nd century humans, are we in that? 21st century humans. Um, but that was totally, we, that's weird to say to a human just like 500, 700 years ago. I, I've been asking this question to myself recently. Like how many of us, know what our neighbors do every day and might even like know how we directly benefit from what they do and vice versa. Uh, or, or even get to like see the smile on the stranger's face of the thing that you do every day and you get that feedback loop. That was total. like you knew the guy who made your bread 500 mm-hmm. years ago when you made the bread at night. You knew the guy who like built your house and cut down the tree. That started to change really rapidly. And I think we underestimate how quickly that changed. And Mm -hmm. the feeling of, um, and then politically, that's also changed. We were all told, and then this is going to sound a little bit like a defense of the Trump voters, and it is in a way, frankly, but not even the Trump voters. Think of it as a global populist phenomenon that goes back to, you know, Arab Spring, now even like weirdly GameStop kids, like it's all over the place in Brazil, Le Pen in France. There's a global effort of this. And I hate it just as much as everyone else, the Trump thing. So don't like get this the wrong way. But there is a, a, a feeling of they've been told for a long time, hang on, it's going to work out. I promise you're going to love it, right? Like, you know, your labor's getting outsourced, automation's coming along, these these like nerds in Silicon Valley who went to Ivy League schools who you don't understand what they do. Like, don't worry, they're making gadgets that are really cool. You're going to love them. And for a while, and frankly, both political parties told them that for a long time, we could turn the knobs and, you know, talk about abortion and get them excited about certain things. But that was that was the world we were forging. 
And we and that's kind of here and coming quickly. And it's done a lot of great things, frankly, for big like, you know, uh, infant mortality rates and the Steven Pinker graphs of the world. It's like sort of bend in the right direction. But that's a hard thing to feel when you're just one person staring at your computer screen or feeding the meter or, mm-hmm. you know, going to work for some mm-hmm. global company that you have no idea who's buying the products at this point um, or if anyone can afford them. Um, so the feeling of like a loss of a direct feedback loop from our communities and now, and John Height's been writing about this, I think in really interesting ways about social media, maybe breaking that whole notion of like the whole world should be connected. I think people are starting to rethink of it think of it, not just because of the political pain we're experiencing, but almost the personal sort of um, loss of a direct feedback loop from your, your community. Also, of course, if there's any poison in the well of an entirely connected network, the whole network gets sick. So there's, I mean, that's a literal mm-hmm. one right now with COVID, of course, but also think of it in the ideas realm. Um, yeah. And so I think we are at a weird breaking point and having this conversation now is interesting because a lot of people are seeing the cracks in it's like coming home to roost a lot of the things obviously the capital riot was this like ugly version and again i may you may have just liked what i said and it sounds somewhat sophisticated about feeling empowered and disempowered what you see in the capital riot it, like it looks dumb because it is dumb <laughs> like the guy with the confederate flag marching through the capital and all of the crap you hear like you said it's the, it's like this extreme language that at that point it's so hard to sit back in our philosophical chairs and twiddle our thumbs and be like ooh they're just disempowered but if you could like hear it out and get underneath it, think think of this conversation we're having and this mm-hmm. moment in history from the perspective of a historian writing about it 500 years from now, and maybe those details start to get a little less um, inflammatory in your mind. It's almost like now when we talk about World War One, how much of us really focus on the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, right? Like mm-hmm. it was the start. If you stare at that too closely, you're actually going to miss the story of what was happening in the world, what was breaking in the world then. And I think if you stare too closely at the details right now, and it's very hard to do in the 24-hour news cycle and the social media cycle that's even faster than that, and this like constant waterfall of crap that we all get every day, it's hard to step out of it and not stare at every little assassination and try to figure out what it means, but actually put it in some bigger pattern. But now I'm sounding like a conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist. Because you're like, what's this bigger pattern, right? But let's not go too crazy that there's some nefarious, like, evil group like my friend. His name is Ellery. If you listen to the episode, I miss him and love him. Um, you know, he fell into sort of the Federal Reserve trap, and it, it spiraled out of control into this, I don't know, nefarious, big, globalist plan. And I, I said in the episode, I have no idea what state his mind was in when he um, took his own life. But I am sure, and after talking to his ex-wife, I'm even more sure that COVID and Trump to him was direct confirmation of all of the fears of, you know, a globalist population control kind of scheme. And he didn't want to live in that world. He also had MS, which I pointed out was a direct loss of control of literally his muscles. So it was a very like, you know, uh, tangible version of losing control. Um, But Mm -hmm. that's all, that's like Mm -hmm. what I want to avoid as well. Um, And he didn't need to get there, right? He didn't need to get there. As I said in that episode, from the very beginning, what I just laid out about empowerment and neoliberalism and like maybe the promise to Iowa was a bad one and they're, and now they, they've got pitchforks and they're ready to tear down the building. Uh, you don't need to invent a globalist lizard brain, you know, uh, right. thing against this. It could just be regular run-of-the-mill corruption, greed, the things we humans deal about and people like you and I in philosophy classes talk about and, you know, 
obsess over uh, all the time as like that stuff doesn't go away. This is this is like ancient human folly stuff. It's just manifesting itself again. We don't need to invent an ugly conspiracy about what's happening here. With anti-Semitism, as you brought up directly, that has a long history of happening, that little path, mm -hmm. and we could talk about why that happens a lot directly. But it's another one that she didn't need to do. So to your point, um, and I have problems with Barry's book, frankly, about anti-Semitism. I don't, I don't think it gets to this level, and it, it needs mm -hmm. to. It stays on this kind of surface level uh, mm -hmm. place that, again, is a little too close to the details and doesn't get behind these bigger philosophical, charitable, sort of existential dread that we're all in. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of that is to say, if that if that wandering answer gets somewhere, is that like, what I wish we could come out of this with is that we are all in all of this together. Like it's, we're really, really not that separated. The culture war is a, is a mirage. It's a mirage and mm -hmm. an illusion that's getting amplified and, and it's, it's, it's amplifying our worst impulses, including the vindictiveness of people who now suddenly have power and including some genuine, um, understandable revenge of people who have been historically repressed, uh, racial groups and everything. Like all of this is um, understandable. And and I, I don't have like the answers of how to deal with it. But if we stare too closely at the, the details of, pe of what people are saying or the symbols of Trump or the symbols of the woke, uh, we're going to miss the conversation completely. I I think I very strongly agree with pretty much everything that you said there. I th and and like it's hard for me because I don't I don't want to be become the things that I hate. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I hate, one of the things that really makes me want to actually fuck somebody up is because <laughs> is 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 when people take advantage of those who feel disempowered. Because mm. I'm lucky to not feel disempowered, but I have known many people who have, and I've seen them be taken advantage of, and it makes me want to do violence. And and like at the same time, how do I how do I go to bat against someone like James Lindsay, who I think is the ultimate well poisoner and is doing mm. vast amounts of harm, but do it in such a way where I don't do exactly what he's doing and like turn him into this monster that everybody needs to, you know, go to war against because he's collapsing Western civilization. How do I balance? How do I not get pulled into his catastrophizing world? It's so hard. It's such you a, gotta block, like it's, you have to block him on, on social media, <laughs> but, but <laughs> like, that's, that's not an answer though, because no, then I, I'm just, I know, I know I'm just right. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. like, then I'm just, you know, it's fine, but I, I, I agree with you. Like lots of people should block him on social media, yeah. but like, unless everybody does it right you're not disempowering him from spreading misinformation from poisoning the well as you were saying and i think he is one of the great well poisoners of the world at the moment so yeah i think it is really hard but i agree with you that ultimately what we have to do and it reminds me i'll, I'll quote a wokey right of saying it's the same thing you're saying which is uh frieri's uh pedagogy of the oppressed right where he talks about how the oppressed have to liberate their oppressors as well as themselves it doesn't mm -hmm. seem just, but I think it is true that like we all got to liberate each other. We all got to bootstrap ourselves out of this problem, even if that is not as just an outcome as, you know, the, the people who did who caused the problem fixing the problem or something like yeah. that. Um, let me I just wanted to, I wanted to say, ahead. yeah, I mean, because before, I know we're going to like wrap up pretty soon. But I, I think I told you, I've been like Michael Sandel's book, that uh, tyranny of merit that's going mm -hmm. being pre pretty widely read right now. I recommend it like super, super highly. And I think um, is going to be very challenging, frankly, for a lot of woke um, fans to read 
it hmm. points out, um, you know, that education and credentialism is the last remaining acceptable discrimination. And it's really, really true. <laughs> and when you read it and you go through, like with intersectionality and all these different frameworks of thinking about identity, the intersectionality, like the identity that doesn't seem to be allowed on the table, to go back to our earlier conversation, is just poverty. Doesn't seem to be allowed. Because as soon as you allow that one, you know where it goes, which is that a lot of those poor white people then suddenly have a place at your table, but you've already, you know, you've already disallowed them because their identity of whiteness or they're not oppressed enough or whatever. Um, the, the, what the wokeness needs to really look out for. And I, I, I don't, I don't know your politics totally. So I was thinking uh -huh. about like, as you were saying that about not becoming what you hate, um, and like looking down on certain people, the, the certainty again, and the snobbery of certain woke positions that look down upon, you know, regular working class class people who didn't go to Ivy League schools, didn't even go to college, maybe went to a community college. And they get, they're living in a system right now. This is sort of Sandel's point with the tyranny of merit that we all convince ourselves that we get what we deserve, right? Like you earned it. You earned your place in society. You worked hard, you went to school, and then you got in here. And I think people are starting to sniff the BS in that a little bit, even just in the data that, you know, mobility and class mobility in the U.S. is super low, much, much mm -hmm. lower than a lot of mm -hmm. European countries. And, that's, and it's going the wrong way. CEO pay ballooning, ballooning to 320 times the amount of the average employee right now is crazy. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's been delivered to us by the promise of a liberal economy. Um, it was only 20, I think it, it, you pointed to like when this all started, that might be a good point. That breaking point started around when you were saying like 1960, when it was only like 20 mm -hmm. to one, now it's 320 to one. That's kind of, that's kind of insane. That's kind of mm -hmm. like really out of control. Um, and, but, but then we tell ourselves like, oh, you won and you deserve it. You worked hard and you got to the top, which implies if you don't work hard or you didn't, if, if you lost, it's your own damn fault. And this notion of, you know, welfare queens and living off the dole, it's like this charity at the bottom. And, you know, getting into college is is already something that's very hard to do without a lot of money. And, and then it has to be mm -hmm. a certain kind of college. He right, you know, he goes through all of this. And what I like about it, and this is going to get back to the philosophical stuff, is that he actually proposes a solution. It's not just like bitching. And he's just, he's spitballing a little bit, but he talks about an Ivy League school. And he talks about, okay, like, we're not just going to let everybody in because, all right, you know, they won't succeed. Mm -hmm. And so how do we do this? And I forget the school he was using as an example. It may have been Yale or Harvard, one of the big three. Um, they get like 20,000 applications a year. And let's just say they're going to accept 2,000. I don't know. These, this is the fictional school. They're going to accept like 2,000, just, you know, 10% mm -hmm. of those mm -hmm. applicants. And half of the applicants are totally qualified. 10,000 of them are qualified to make it. So what do you do? How do you go from 10,000 to 2,000? Who are, who are, how are you going to do this? And right now it's a mix of, you know, all kinds of nepotism and legacies and uh, who's mm -hmm. going to pay the most, or you could put in affirmative action. We could talk about all these kinds of things, but what he proposes rather than some sort of myth of merit, he proposes literally just once you get the baseline of like everybody in this group will succeed, do a lottery, do a yeah. random lottery. Luck. Because, <laughs> because luck, because that, and this is the really interesting thing. The We've luck always been trying to, 
yeah, we, we've always been trying to do this. It, it would immediately be like everyone who got in there knows they're lucky to get in because they won some lottery. And they would take much less pride and sort of patting themselves on the back of earning this place in society. They would immediately have compassion for people who didn't get in because there's, there's luck. And what's, what's interesting about that, and this really maybe ties together that early stuff about invented and discovered, is, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we haven't talked about free will directly, but every system, religious systems, we could talk about the caste system in India, we could talk about different mm-hmm. historical feudalism systems, are, are human constructs. But weirdly, I think everyone tries to figure out, like, you know, should we be building a human political system here that matches the one that apparently God is endorsing. And if mm-hmm. God is endorsing a political system, it is luck. <laughs> it's like, it's like no one asked to be here. I didn't choose anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose my genetics. I didn't choose my parents. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose how much, you know, I, I had some money growing up in my family. I was uh, like, you know, it, it's a hard determinist kind of argument. But yeah. Even the most, luck all the time. So this is yeah, moral luck, right? Yeah, going to this place. Right. Yeah. I mean, like even yeah, if your audience knows, like even the hardest core sort of compatibilist free will defenders don't even try to defend libertarian free will, which is what we're talking about here. And that, you know, that that word, <laughs> this ties it all together. It's always said when people talk about free will, they're like libertarian free will is the is the feeling that I could have done otherwise, which feels kind of intuitive. But when you think about it deeply, it falls apart. And they always are quick to point out being like, it has nothing to do with the political system also called the same name. And I'm like, it totally does. <laughs> it completely it totally does. does. Yeah. It's, it's the lie of libertarian free will is the one you need to accept to start the engine of libertarianism. And it's the exact one that people like Hannah Arendt, I don't know if you know her work, like sort of point out leads to this collapse. It's exactly what Sandel has. He's basically rehashed her work in a way, I think really beautifully, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. points to this. What we're going to fall into is this trap that we made our own luck. We deserved what we got in the end whether that's on the top or the bottom. And what ends up happening, what's weird in this conversation, I don't know when it's going to flip, is the woke stuff tends to align at the moment with kind of the winners being the wokest. And I'm not talking about sort of the racial part of it at the moment, but like the white college kids who are the loudest, you know, bully pulpit, uh, you know, loudspeakers putting out a lot of Uh this stuff are kind of the winners of this thing. If you say, and, you know, I might be jumping down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but if you put sort of like the, the the deplorables as kind of the losers of the moment of this system that was built, I know I'm generalizing a bit here, but if you go with that a little bit, that there are losers of a neoliberal kind of capitalist meritocracy happening um, who feel like they're being left out of this future that they aren't even getting to forge and they're getting no uh, feedback loop or an agency with, they're sort of on the bottom of that. And what, what we fear mm-hmm. and what I think rubs a lot of the the wrong way is the kind of snobbery that seems to come out of like language policing that seems to be coming from the winners of this thing, like the top Mm -hmm. of this thing. It's not, I think wokeism views themselves as rooting for the underdogs of society rather fervently where I fear from some third person point of view, if you zoomed out enough, you could be like, I think they're kind of beating up on the underdogs and telling the underdogs what to do and calling them stupid and, you know, mm-hmm, calling mm-hmm. them names. And um, so, so that kind of like, I don't know, ivory tower from the perch yelling mm-hmm. down Marie Antoinette ish thing is really where this thing could, could ignite in ways that are, are bad. I don't know what a wokeism for the deplorables looks like, but uh, you know, it's, it's not going to look or sound great. That's the point.
I mean, I think it still just looks like white supremacy like it did before. But it might. anyway, so there's a lot of stuff in there and I, we're like way over time. But I really want to I'm going to press this a little bit further because I think this is really interesting because I love tyranny of merit and and like mm. the myth of meritocracy and like the critiques of the meritocracy that arises yeah. in enlightenment liberalism in particular. That's the source of the meritocracy that you're talking about here is these the same traditions that the anti-woke think are being attacked by the woke. So what's funniest to me about this is the idea that the anti-woke would be against these critiques of merit. Now, where I agree with you is in practice, it, I, don't, I don't think it's true that the, I don't, I'll, let me back up. I don't think necessarily all or the majority of woke people are those white elite academics like myself, right? Who are in those places of power. I do think that there is still a strong energy of wokeness in marginalized communities. I don't think it gets nearly as much play because it's much easier to attack the academic elite kids who are, you know, who seem like really easy targets in this kind of way. So I don't, I don't think we have good data necessarily on what the breakdown actually is there versus the way they're just being, one is being amplified and the other is being ignored. But I do absolutely agree with you that there is a strain of smug, um, and I, and it arises, I think, from a place of you conservatives have been torturing the people we love for our mm. entire lives. You've been denying them the right to get married. You've been denying them the rights to, to, you know, adopt and to be who they really are. And so, yeah, we love fucking seeing you reap what you sow now. Right. And like, that is a, that is an understandable urge. But if you're, if you're someone like me who believes that nobody has any free will and it's luck who ends up on what side of these things, ultimately you have to come to a place of seeing it, it was the, their bad luck that they ended up being sort of these conservatives who were raised with mm -hmm. these views and struggled to find their way out of them. Um, so I do think that I think the, the woke need to get over the phase of we are in power now and we are going to enjoy seeing just punishment meted out in this way and get to back to a place of like universe, like you're saying, sort of universal uh, forgiveness for everyone who is willing to genuinely acknowledge that they have done done problems. Now, the flip side of all of this that's so funny to me is everything that leads to, to, to that book, right? The myth of the tyranny of merit is woke stuff, right? Mm. I'm, in, I'm doing a, a PhD in education right now. And so I've been reading the history of education theory. And, and what we think of as the woke arises out of these critical theory critiques of the, you know, why is it if, you know, school is available to everyone, poor kids are ending up poor still and rich mm -hmm. kids are ending up rich still. Why is, why is um, our society failing to provide any kind of mobility? And it leads to these systemic critiques, which then start to include not just class, but also race. And I do think that there is a lot of wokeness that integrates both the class concerns and the racial, or should be. I, I think you do see some of it in there, you know, obviously the the people out in the world who are doing the teenage version of it, as you say, don't always aren't always as as comfortable playing those, but playing the the tension between them and the, and then discussing the relations between them. But I do think there is something to that there, and it's it's very funny to me because I just did a debate recently with a guy named Casey Peterson who is very anti woke and. Mm -hmm. 
it was about the executive order that Trump put forward, the one that like banned critical race theory. One of the things it bans is talking about the history of merit as a system used by certain people to dominate other people. So mm. it effectively would prohibit the kinds of discussions that you are finding really valuable in those conversations. So maybe this is a way for us to come together and say, um, there really is a lot more common ground when it comes to things like recognizing the way that society has continued to be unjust. Um, and we just need to work on um, de, you know, de not deplatforming, but like lowering the amount of power that folks like James Lindsay have who want to say that um, the executive order is great and that critiques of merit are just attempts to, um, I don't know, do whatever evil thing he thinks that we're trying to do. And we genuinely want to just point out that all the things you were just saying about like, it is really hard to to have this kind of merit that people think people have to have in order to be valuable in that kind of way. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic. And I, I do think, I find there are lots of woke people who are very sympathetic to that merit stuff. And I think that will uh, hopefully help them to get more on board with the luck stuff that you're talking about there as well. Can I, yeah. we're, we're, we're way over time, but I wanted to ask you one more question before sure. I take you to the enlightening round. Are there, <laughs> this is a question I asked of Trolldy as well. Um, are there folks that you would point to? I can now point to your show and say, this is someone who I would point to who's outside of our in-group a little bit and you should listen to them. Are there other folks that you would direct people towards who you think are doing this work of decatastrophizing and um, you know, finding common ground again in these sorts of things. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm going to encourage people because I've been finding it useful for myself is to get out of the trenches a little bit more mm -hmm. and more into it. Like I spent the last week nerding out on math stuff. Some of it was a, was a hole that, you know, uh, I was going down because of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. The people trying to de like, turn down the volume here i feel like i'm working not even at all <laughs> in the trenches of the po political conversations you know mm -hmm. what i mean it's like like read more history um read more science stuff i've just discovered this incredible um philosopher sylvia jo jonas i think it's pronounced who's talking about the history of mathematics and philosophy and how that trickles down to the way we uh, actually build political philosophies. So it's it's more of this like zoom way the hell out. If you're too close or if you're trying if you're trying to get closer to wokeness or anti-wokeness to like figure out the answer, like I think you're going mm -hmm. the wrong direction, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Like I love Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast. Um, sure. I, I'm trying to think of like good documentaries or movies I've seen lately. It's like zoom out of it a little bit, check in when you need to. Um but uh, just to see if like the house is on fire pretty much is like the way I've been doing it being like, okay, have they burned down the Capitol again? Okay. No. All right. <laughs> like, let me go mm -hmm. back to, to, to reading something else. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Dan Dennett's thing that we talk about free will a lot. I I've recently finally understood Dan Dennett's argument for, um, no, uh, his mm -hmm. version of free will, but f uh, for the notion that consciousness is an illusion, that was really enlightening to read. Sweet dreams was the, book in particular that got mm -hmm. me all the way there um yeah stuff like that everyone knows who listens to me that i love david deutsch and i reference him all the time so stay in those places i mean your, your show mm -hmm. i've been listening to a little bit recently is great and then the new liberals i was on i've really liked his show i feel like those are good people doing this kind of work um mm -hmm. i actually work with sam so i'm biased there but i don't know what else to tell you yeah yeah, no, I mean, that goes very well with a lot of the stuff people have said about, like, um, as we're Klein talking about how we, as we have nationalized our identities, you know, it, it becomes this, this 
mm-hmm. over, you know, catastrophized culture war thing and maybe getting back to local identities, like you were saying, finding out what's going on in your community more. Um, yeah. and, oh, let and me give you of, another one, actually. Mm-hmm. Let me give you another one. Matthew Crawford, uh, Matthew B. Okay. Crawford, who wrote who wrote the, shop, the, the book Shop Class as Soulcraft, which did really well a bunch of years ago. But his mm-hmm. recent one called Why We Drive is just mm-hmm. phenomenal and really okay. like it, really supercharges a lot of the arguments I was making that were about sort of agency and our feeling in the world. He looks at sort of self-driving cars, not even taking a stance for or against it as like a political stance, um, but considering kind of how that changes us uh, Mm -hmm. through a political lens and, um, you know, what the, why we're attracted to the open road and what the open road really means and what an intersection in the third world without a traffic light really is telling us quite interesting stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. He's a voice really that I cool. wish was, yeah, was, was much more popular in, um, in our circles if they're, if they overlap. Oh, great. All right. Well, that's a lot of good suggestions there. So now, unfortunately I have to torture you. So right, this is, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not Mm. real? Those are your only (laughs) options, real or not real. You can't hedge. You can't define your terms. There is no middle ground here. Are you ready? I'm ready. I guess I can't be wrong, so I'm I'm at ease already. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. You don't know know why I said what I said. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. The stakes could not be lower, and yet let's see how this goes for you. Right? Okay. So first of all, is anything real? Yes. All right. Great. So let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not? Ooh, I hate that word real. I really want to hedge it because I just gave Dennett's book. Uh, no. <laughs> Free will? No. Mm-hmm. Selves or persons? Selves or persons? No. Okay. Genders? No. Races? No. Species? Yes. Morality? No. Rights? No. <laughs> Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? No. Society? No. <laughs> Money? No. Numbers? Wait, that money one, I really wanted to hedge, but <laughs> uh, numbers, wow. Um, numbers, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Fictional characters? No. Holes, like a hole in the ground? A hole, like a hole in the ground, oh wow. Um, yes. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? Yes. Natural laws? No. Uh, mm-hmm. Natural laws. Is it like a physical law? I needed to hedge that one. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Just natural laws. Uh, fine. Yes. <laughs> Beauty? Um, no. Love? No. Causality? Wow. 
have to plug Judea Pearl's book of why the answer is yes. <laughs> and finally time. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? They were really good. I wanted to hedge like every single one, <laughs> but know. Um, they were really good. I was thinking of a lot of, a lot of um, ways to define obviously real and reality in that. And as you were going there, I was going to try to, I was basically putting a little quick test to all of them in my mind. If two independent consciousnesses with totally different languages would discover mutually the same phenomenon, I would call it real. Okay, that's an interesting money, way. To, yeah, I'm sympathetic yeah, the, to that interpretation. The money mo- money one was tricky um, mm, mm-hmm. because I was thinking like money versus wealth. I think wealth is real, money is not real. That was like my weird hedge on it. No, as a moral realist, there, I like your test. I think that's a good test. It's a, it's an interesting one, right? It's like would they discover mm-hmm. it, and and that's why mm-hmm. but way back to our original one with math, um, it's mostly discovered but partially invented which is super mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, if anyone goes down those paths and that's, yeah, sort of how I was thinking of that. Similar to the Yuval Harari sapiens um, premise in a way about mm-hmm. myths. Um, mm-hmm. And he and he threw, by the way, just like, he threw morality in there as a myth. And I, I did call it not real, but without like any argumentation. And I was like, I need like three chapters for you to prove that to me. <laughs> but he just sort of like <laughs> threw it in there. Yeah. He included nations, he included other things, but yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Although I hope mm-hmm. we both would independently find sandwiches together because I like sandwiches. I wish, I wish they were, I wish they were, did I say they were real? I guess I'm glad they're real. Yeah. yeah. We'll both find it. Yeah. They pro- we might call them something differently, but we'd probably invent the same thing. The sandwiches seem pretty contingent to me, but I understand your preferences. <laughs> um, yeah. So this has been really fun, Jay. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Oh yeah. I mean, so what com is like my website and I've been making a concerted effort to really spruce it up and has all my essays. You could of course then link to uh, all of my dilemma podcast archives. Cause I do it in seasons. I think you just keep your sort of continually going, but I'm about to take like, you know, a few month break. Um, but there's now like 48 or 49 shows over two seasons. Um, yeah. What thinks.com is sort of like where I try to live. And I have a super lo-fi little mailing list. You can sign up for there. Literally just like personal emails from me when I feel like I did something that was worthwhile it includes this podcast. When this is live, I'll I'd push that out to you and be like, Hey, I did a thing. So if you're into that, sign up for that too. But yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Jay. And like I said, everybody should definitely check out the Dilemma podcast. I think it's really, really solid and you don't sort of shirk on the hard issues, but I don't think you lean into uh, catastrophizing, which is the thing that I care most about in the world right now. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I try honestly not to do a lot of the hard, like, you know, woke, anti-woke stuff. There's a couple episodes Mm -hmm. where I'm like, all right, I got to get into it a little bit and let's see what happens. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just try to like do like rabbit hole dives into inter- interesting subjects with interesting people and see what happens. So I really appreciate it. This was really, really fun. No, it was great. Thanks very much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks so much to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, the original heathen, the vegan, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and the inimitable Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. 
Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how things are going, remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.